welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. A decade ago, patient engagement emerged as one of the cornerstones of healthcare reform. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the six priorities of the National Quality Strategy, meaningful use and new models of care such as accountable care organisations all encouraged patients to become active participants in decision-making about their health and healthcare. Patients are also viewed as key players in what the Institute of Medicine calls the learning health system and are frequently participants in learning and research activities that contribute to a common purpose of improving the quality of clinical care and patient outcomes. As a result of this emphasis on patient engagement, continuing education providers now frequently design and deliver patient-directed education, which is sometimes also tethered to clinical education. But patient education has been around since at least the 1960s as part of the wider field of health promotion. The structure of patient education has changed for sure, from information supply about living with disease to an emphasis on active improvements to behaviours, disease self-management, and as we've seen in the 21st century, greater engagement with shared decision-making around treatment. Today, we discuss best practices in creating content for patient education. My guest is Dr. Genevieve Long, an expert in plain language content. I'm your host, Alex Housen. Welcome to Write Medicine. I'm here today with Dr. Genevieve Long, who is a longtime friend and colleague through the American Medical Writers Association. And I'm so excited for our conversation today about writing education content specifically targeted toward patients. So Genevieve, welcome. Thank you. It's good to see you here today. And we are recording this in August 2020. We are still in the middle of COVID. It is warm. We're both on the West Coast. Genevieve, I'm hoping that you have some air conditioning going on there down in Oregon. I do. And we are still in the middle of COVID. So we are not face-to-face, but we are using Zoom. And so we can see each other as we have this conversation. Genevieve, I wanted to start by asking you, how did you end up in writing education materials for patients? What is your story? 
Well, that is a great question. Uh, you know, I really learned how to talk to patients. I think the way I learned most things in health and medicine from my dad, who is an almost retired, uh, now consulting physiatrist. One of my jobs in healthcare was to work in his office as his transcriptionist when I was in college. And it was a small office. He was a solo practitioner. So I could hear him. This was before HIPAA, let me reassure everyone. But uh, I could hear him talking with the patients. And I could hear his calm manner and the way he treated everyone the same, whether they were a logger from the Oregon coast or an attorney who was very high powered and consulting him about a case, how he would ask questions and he would listen and he would speak to people the way that they understood. He really related to everyone in a very down-to-earth and humble manner. And so I learned to just treat people as people. Everyone is in pain or has a worry, and you're there to understand it. And when I started to write patient education, I think my first formal piece was a brochure called How to Apply Your Eye Medication. So a good old how-to with illustrations uh, written by one of the physicians at Oregon Health and Science University where I had my first medical writing job. They wanted to redo the language. And so I just thought about teaching people how to do it. There was little in the wider world of health communication at the time about techniques uh, for patient education or writing for patients. The experts knew about it, but it hadn't filtered out to folks the way it has now. So I, I wrote my first piece and enjoyed doing it and, uh, and just kept doing it. I love the idea that you have your father's voice in your head as you're writing and creating materials for patient education. And I wonder how many of us, if we stepped back from the work that we do have somebody's voice, mm -hmm. just giving us a little bit of direction and guidance. You yourself are a teacher. That is true. You obviously went to grad school and you've been teaching adults about writing for a long time. So how did you get from that teaching into writing patient education? And I know you are still teaching, so maybe you could talk a little bit mm -hmm. about that as well. That's true. I do teach. I teach in the University of Chicago Graham School program that's continuing liberal and professional education. Uh, it is for adults. And I teach in the medical writing certificate program. I've been lucky enough to do that for about four or five years. And I really enjoy teaching prospective medical writers. I have taught the medical editing courses, and now I teach uh, writing and research ethics, and I teach a course in basic freelancing. It's true. Now, I have to bring my mother into this because she was a teacher by profession. And that was my first chosen career. Veterinarian was a close second, but I couldn't stand the idea of doing surgery on animals. So uh, I did not follow that particular path, but healthcare and teaching, I did. 
Um, I was trained to teach at Portland State University by a wonderful professor named Duncan Carter. He is now gone, but he was a real scholar of composition, pedagogy, and classical rhetoric. And this was all evidence-based. So he trained us to teach our classes full of uh, first-year students uh, based on what we knew about how people write, how people read, what they absorb, even behavioral and cognitive studies of students' writing process. So I was taught to teach writing in a very evidence-based way to study it. We did case studies, we wrote papers, we were encouraged even to read them at conferences and to try publishing. So it really was a short step over to thinking about how do people faced with healthcare decisions or looking at something that's a very new and strange document to them, like a consent form or even a health uh, clinic registration form, how do they handle that cognitively? So the way I was trained to teach, and I taught at the university level for about eight years before dropping out, becoming a medical writer, and then eventually circling back. Uh, But the way I was trained to teach was very evidence-based. It was very academic. And we took that straight into the classroom each week. So that, it really made writing patient education and looking at the evidence for readability, for literacy, for cognitive demand on your reader of health information. It just made it very, uh, very real and uh, very easy for me to do. Let's talk a little bit about that evidence space then. What would you say are the most important things for people who are writing content for patient education specifically to really be thinking about as they, you know, create materials? Mm -hmm. Right. I think the first thing that you have to know is what is happening for this person cognitively. My dad used to say, never forget that you can hurt the patient. If you ever forget that you can cause the patient pain, you should not be doctoring anymore. You have a lot of power. Now, I was just watching the news last night and I saw a piece on St. Jude Children's Research Hospital where I was lucky enough to work for a number of years writing patient education. And uh, they had a mother on who said, when I heard my little girl had retinoblastoma, I was terrified. And she was weeping during this uh, news piece. She was just breaking down. And this is someone whose daughter has been treated already, has a pretty good prognosis for retinoblastoma. And just going back into that space was making her completely break down. A lot of us who write in healthcare are very, very happy in the world of healthcare. We are smart people. We are scientists. We are teachers. It is the water that we swim in. The world of knowledge, the world of health. I grew up following my dad on rounds in the hospital. Again, this was long before HIPAA. But the hospital was a friendly place to me. And for many of us, we're comfortable in the world of health and medicine. Patients... And their loved ones are shaking. And when you are shaking and petrified, you can't think anymore. You may have a PhD. You may have an MBA. You may be an executive. Your body has just gone into fight or flight. 
or one of the other four responses we now know people go into when they're just faced with a threat. So that's the number one thing I think we really need to empathize with when we write for the public. The other thing is, we who write the the healthcare stuff are a rare bird. We're an exception. We read about constipation because we're really interested in it. We're so interested in, you know, what makes the ears ring or what terrible substances to avoid when we're pregnant. We're really interested in that. People who aren't in healthcare aren't. They don't actually want that in their life. They didn't ask for lymphoma or cadmium poisoning or a bad back. They'd rather get in, get out. Sometimes they don't even want to be in the doctor and healthcare space at all. I had someone work with me years ago who said, I don't go to the doctor. Why is that, Janet? Well, they might find out something is wrong with me. Okay, so there's a couple of things there that I really want to dig into just a little bit more. One is, you know, specific tips and tools that you are kind of bringing to bear when you are trying to create content that gets into that space of patients who want to get in and get out, you know, of the education material. And the other is is empathy and how you practice empathy when you're writing. I love that. And then the third thing is, as you're speaking about the things that you're thinking about when you're writing patient education, I am struck by how much that kind of approach is also potentially applicable to writing education for providers. Because even though they are steeped in the science, they need that practical get in, get out. What can I use? So three things, writing for providers, specific tips and tools, and practicing empathy, any order you choose. (laughs) Okay. I want to give specific tips and tools first because you did ask me about that and uh, I know that's useful to the audience. So the first thing is most important information first. I just did some fact sheets on lymphoma, not lymphoma, lymphedema, I'm sorry. And they started with a little paragraph about the center of excellence from whence these information sheets are coming. And I switched it around. Lymphedema is talked about it. What are the lymph nodes? Why are they important? So you start with the most important information first. And that's because we all tend to read a bit at the top and then kind of tune out. So most important information first, uh, stick with the need to know. And this will apply to your super busy nurse practitioner who has a moment to look at her uh, health education at lunchtime as much as to a mom whose kid has cancer. The need to know, what can I act on? What will I be tested on? Principle of adult learning, what are you motivated? What can you use? Children get taught a lot of things. This is how we differ from teaching children. We fill children with a lot of knowledge they're just going to need in life, or we think they will. Adults come in because they're motivated to learn some specific thing. And so the need to know, but not the nice to know. And so the need to know is if you have uh, such and so endocrine problem, uh, you may you know, grow larger breasts if you're a man, and that could be alarming. And the name of the little bone that the gland sits on, that's not a need to know. That's a nice to know. That's something you teach medical students because you're filling their heads full of everything about the endocrine system. But the patient does not need to know that. 
They don't need to know anatomical names. They don't need to see radiographs. There are things they don't need because they can't act on them. They need to know how many hours before surgery should they stop eating. So those are tips. Uh, Simple. And specifically, uh, let's think about the words we use. We talk about using short words a lot, and there's kind of a misconception that all your words should be short. Really familiar words, common words, something that's easy to read by eye. And this will go for your busy provider who has just a moment, you know, in the car at lunch, such as it is, just a few minutes here and there to try to do their CME or scan an article. So familiar words, words that uh, are easy, sentences that are easy to read, subheads, keep that eye moving and make the content engaging using enough white space. So it's not a big block of text that puts you to sleep if you're trying to read it at night after a long day, right? like the busy professional, or turns you off so that you put it down and never look at it again, like our patients and caregivers. Wonderful. I love that advice. Uh, You said a couple of things there, and I know we're going to circle to empathy and providers. You talked specifically about principles of adult learning, and I wondered if you could say just a few more things about what are some of the key things that you see in your work that stem from principles of adult learning? Because I think one of the things that provider-focused education world sometimes struggles with is how to use those principles in creating written content in particular. Sometimes I think it can be challenging for people to hold those principles in their head. You mentioned motivation. What are some of the other principles that really come to bear in the work that you're doing with patient education? You know, for me in adult learning, you have to engage. I think the principle of interactivity and engagement is really important. And that's why you see so much health education, you know, online, not just because it's easy and you know more about this than I, but the more you are interacting with the content, the better you're going to get your hands on it, retain it and be ready for the test. Uh, So that's one principle. And I will say I'm not by any means an adult education expert. Uh, Segmentation is another. We all have fairly short attention spans. One of the things I try to do continually, I'm trying to to increase in my University of Chicago uh, Graham School classes for the working professionals who are looking into medical writing is segment our course content. We have an hour each week where we actually meet together. And if I just lecture and read slides the whole time, they might as well not show up. <laughs> so we have discussion. I make everybody get on Zoom. Everybody show your face, you know, whether your cat's walking by or whatever. And we interact like it's a real class. I have them give presentations. And I'm far from the only instructor who does this. Uh, you can break people out into rooms. One of the things I do with patient and caregiver content is very simply put some places for them to write on the handout you're giving them. Mm. And for providers, you know, maybe you include a space for notes. Uh, maybe you create a decision aid or something for them to hang at their uh, desk in clinic where they are hands-on and actually using the material. So I would say motivation, segmentation, and whatever other one I said. And then with that writing piece, you're activating or you're stimulating the reticular activation system so that you're really creating that connection between hand and brain retention, Mm -hmm. hand movement and brain retention. I love that. Right. 
you also, when we talk about patients and caregivers and the public, uh, getting people to engage with their own health care is a big deal now. We know from research, and I can't quote you exactly, there are many citations out there, but we know from research that patients who are engaged in their health care tend to do better, which you know, costs the health system less and everything does better. We do see this with diabetes. We're working on it in heart disease. And so if you create a booklet or some worksheets for someone who has um, atrial fibrillation, you know, write down, here are the two things I'm going to do to try to lower my blood pressure. Here are some ideas of what I might do. You know, maybe I'd like to lose some weight. What are the things I can do? Write down the contact information for their nurse or their physician assistant, their contact and clinic. Work on it together with the person so that they're not just being handed a guide by their physician assistant or their doctor. They are sitting down and doing it as a team and they're deciding, here's my plan for my atrial fibrillation. And I know that there are some organizations who are very kind of focused on redesigning their patient education in mm-hmm. that way, in a way to empower not only patients, but providers so that they are working together. And I know that word empower is an interesting word. So what do you think about situations where faculty may say that they really want to empower the patient with this education, whether it's a video, whether it's a written booklet. When faculty talk about empowerment, what do they mean and how does that translate into patient education? That is such a good question because to unpack the word empowerment, we assume that that is always a good word, a positive word. But in fact, if we think about, well, we need to empower this patient. So just sort of twisting back on what I just said about how great it is to empower the patient, I really should say provide places and spaces where the patient can become involved to the degree that they choose provide access. Some may not have it or be aware that they can participate. Some will choose really not to participate. We still have some folks who prefer more of a, an authoritative physician and a top-down approach. My grandmother was very much like that. She liked to rely on her doctor. That was the doctor's job to tell her what to do. But when we say we want to empower the patient, sometimes we are uncovering that we feel the patient is powerless. And if we insist that everything happen within the healthcare system and everything that the patient does should happen within that healthcare sort of womb and that they need to come in and adopt the language and be part of the tribe, we're a little bit like the, the missionaries of old who would you know, go overseas and they'd say, oh my goodness, you guys, you really, no more with the loincloths, you need to be wearing shirts and no more with the hunting of the, of the wild boars or whatever it is you do, no more with your ways. We're going to show you how to farm like we do in England or wherever. It's like, wait a minute, they had food. And it's really hot here, so maybe no shirts makes more sense. You know, aren't you hot, folks? So consider what are people already doing? Is it working okay for them? Take a look at them before you, it's like, you know, take a bite of your food before you salt it. Take a look first. Slow down. Meet that person where they actually are. Don't assume that they need medical language. 
any more than, you know, they need the same type of shirt that you are wearing. And here is where we walk into issues of, of equity. And we walk into some very big issues that are uh, being foregrounded all around us that, you know, this is the way and that is not the way. And the way for you to be a powerful patient and the only way for you to be heard is to use medical words. Well, maybe it's not. And so do you get, and I love the way you describe that, do you get pushback from faculty when you make these kind of suggestions? And you know, do providers need more education on what patient education actually needs to look like? Let's talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I do get pushback. Uh, pushback has changed over the years I've been doing patient education, which I've been heavily doing since about 2008. We used to get a lot of pushback, and by we I mean folks who advocated for plain language and simple documents that were useful to the person using them, uh, not just satisfying to us. Uh, We used to get a lot of pushback. Patients need to know. Don't dumb it down. Patients need to know all of this. Now the evidence is just so strong and it comes from web usability. It comes from reading research um, and learning research. The evidence is just so strong that the public does better with a certain type and format of written and digital documents that we don't get that kind of pushback anymore as much. Help me out with the other part of your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, so the other part of my question was, it seems to me that there's potentially a need here for educating providers about what good, solid, evidence-based patient education actually needs to Mm -hmm. look like. Is there much of that going on? Is there scope for expanding that kind of education? Who's doing Mm -hmm. that education directed toward providers? I think that's coming in health literacy and uh, the people who are really the experts uh, like Rima Rudd from Harvard and the Multi-Regional Clinical Trials Center, they are there already. The idea in health literacy now is health literacy isn't just a matter of saying the public has poor health literacy. They don't understand medical words. That was the first message that we started with. Now we're understanding and trying to share with providers that you sort of have poor health literacy too. You aren't knowing how the patients and the public want to communicate. So you you also have a little bit of an issue here. It's not just that they are that they are backward. It's that you haven't been taught about this. And I know that Dr. Cliff Coleman at Oregon Health and Science University has been uh, working hard on helping teach uh, medical students and younger providers there what they can do and how to cope with the need that's in uh, the provider community to bridge that gap. That's interesting. I'm, I'm not familiar with Cliff Coleman's work at all, but it does strike me that, I mean, I've, I've taught students at medical school, you know, in the past several years ago, and, and certainly there didn't seem to be any sense in which learning about how to communicate with patients, never mind educate patients. Obviously, the patient communication piece and communicating as part of a team member has started to creep into the medical school curriculum now, but it's still really patchy. And so, you know, I imagine that piece around learning how to educate patients is going to take longer to mm-hmm. catch up, especially, you know, you've said it a couple of times, providers are really time crunched. Yes. You know, 
What are some of the things, you know, you've mentioned things like booklets or um, worksheets. And Mm -hmm. when we're talking about patient education, you know, we are often talking about written content. Are there other modalities that you see as being potentially really valuable in the patient education space? And are you seeing changes in the kind of materials that people are producing now as opposed to, you know, when you first started working Mm -hmm. in patient education materials? Absolutely. Uh, Of course, apps were not uh, such a big thing at all. So I've been working on, yeah, I've worked on some health apps, information for that. So how do you walk the patient through, you know, symptoms or whatever. People who don't have a computer at home have have a cell phone, have a smartphone. And so they can use a health app on their phone. Uh, Videos are enormous. I remember several years ago sitting in my own doctor's office with some health content that they had purchased and were streaming in the waiting room. And this little girl about nine or 10 next to me was just enraptured. She did not take her eyes from the screen the whole way, you know, 10 or 15 minutes I was waiting. Uh, Videos. I do a lot of video content writing. Yeah, whether it's animated, there are some great ones, or you know, with human actors, videos are, are huge. So we do a lot of education that way now. How much of that push towards visual communication is coming from the availability of technology itself, or how much of it is driven by evidence that that kind of approach works? Good question. I don't know a lot about, I think probably the evidence for the power of TV is really old. (laughs) Kids have been watching Sesame Street for a long time. And then if you put an animated health video up, you know, they're going to watch it. They're not going to look away. So that's a really good question. I don't know really much of anything about the evidence for that. Typically when I am working on, say, a video script, I will talk about listening vocabulary versus reading vocabulary. We can use some words when we're writing for video that we cannot use, I would never use, longer words, medical words that I would not use in print. We all have a reading vocabulary, a speaking vocabulary, and a listening vocabulary. And our listening vocabulary is often pretty extensive, even if we don't have a big speaking vocabulary. So what you can take in from video, think about it. People may watch a science program like Nova or something on Discovery Channel and be just fine with all the tentacles of the sea anemone or whatever. And they would not take that on board as well in print. Right. I like that. Specific evidence, you got me there. Someone else is going to have to take care of that. That's a good question. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's interesting when you said, you know, all the evidence from television, because I immediately thought about Marshall McLuhan and the medium is the message, and that tells you how old I am. <laughs> and me too. Right. right. <laughs> so thinking about then somebody creating content for patient education. Okay. What are some of the resources that we can turn to that will, you know, hold us by the hand a little bit and lead us some of the way? Absolutely. Uh, One of the places that I always recommend is looking at the Centers for Disease Control's uh, Simply Put Guide. The CDC has quite an array of resources for creating plain and understandable uh, education materials. They, I'm really fond of their unit on creating tables, charts, and graphs and what the public understands versus what we in 
academic medicine or science understand. There are really infographics, pie charts, and simple bar charts are just about all you should use for the public. So the CDC, for sure, especially their guides, simply put, and their training modules that are on their website. The other place I would look is uh, the work of Helen Osborne, who is a wonderful health literacy guru, and her podcast, Health Literacy Out Loud, and her book, Health Literacy from A to Z, which is now in its second edition, are incredible resources. I think Simon Fraser University uses her book as the text for their course. I'm sure they'll correct me if they don't. Helen is a friend. She's absolutely wonderful. And she has a wealth of knowledge. So that's another place I would look. Another place I'd like to point people is the U.S. government. A lot of folks do not know that in 2010, we passed the Plain Writing Act. And that says that government documents should be written in plain English. It is a sad day when I find a brochure on preparing for surgery written less plainly than something from the U.S. IRS. That's hard. One of the wonderful things the IRS does is use an if-then table, which is one of my favorite techniques to use. If your property is a farm, then you deduct, you know, so many hundred cows. If your property is not a farm, no cows. No. <laughs> it's, it's very, uh, it's simple, but we, you can use it for, you know, if you had this type of surgery, your risk is very small. If you had this other type, meh, your risk is about one in 10. I love some of the visual risk tools that have mm-hmm. come out of, um, well, cardiology is one of the areas that has done a lot of work in terms of visualizing risk, because risk is one of the things that is is hard for providers, really, mm-hmm. to get ahead around in that clinical moment. But it's extremely hard for the rest of us to think about, especially when our headspace is hearing bad news or trying to kind of figure out whatever a particular diagnosis means. And yeah, so having some tools uh, to be able to access, to think about how to simplify, to visualize, is going to be really helpful to people who are kind of moving into the patient education space. We talked about tips and tools. We talked about educating providers. The third thing that we flagged up uh, all those moments ago at the beginning of our conversation was empathy. Mm-hmm. It does strike me that, you know, you have a very particular story and both your parents are, you know, in your head and your heart as you're writing material. How does that or what are some of the other things that help keep you tethered to empathy as you're writing? Mm-hmm. I think it's really helpful. And I would advise anyone who wants to write for patients uh, to do this if they can, to actually be around people who are coming for healthcare. Maybe you have to sign up as a volunteer at your local hospital a few hours a week. I know this sounds extreme, but I think one of the things that helped me the most was working in fairly low-level healthcare administration, answering the phone. You hear the patient's confusion. Hello, I'd like to make a reservation. Or their hope. Hello, I saw on the Discovery Channel where they replaced this guy's eyeball. Can you do that for my girlfriend? Not yet. We haven't got a way to replace the optic nerve. But where are people coming from? 
they're trying hard for the best language. They saw something in science news or science fiction, and they're excited about it, and they're following up. Spend some time around real patience, if you can, and you will learn and see. And this would be really good for especially folks who write um, in the regulatory medical writing space and are doing things like starting to write uh, summaries of clinical trials for the people who were in them. Mm -hmm. Go to where the people are. Meet some of these folks. Learn a little bit about them. Learn that their bone marrow transplant day is their new birthday. Right. Right. Learn that gaining a quarter of a pound could mean to their wife, oh, he's getting better from his cancer. When really it means he drank a glass of water. So be, be around the actual people that you're, I think in marketing, which is another place I came from, we talk about knowing your audience and having personas and understanding your buyer. Well, it's really hard to write well for patients and their moms and their adult daughters and their busy spouses Mm -hmm. if you really have never met any patients. So if you want to do it, you got to go and be with them. Yeah, that would be my empathy getting advice. I think that's wonderful advice. And I think it's advice that translates to working with providers as well, because so many people who end up in medical writing have often come from, you know, some have come from a journalism background, maybe a few have come from a clinical background, but the majority have come from a science background and often don't have that connection to flesh and blood, nitty gritty, everyday clinical practice and how raw and challenging and frustrating that can actually be. And as you're talking about meeting patients where they are, starting from where patients are. When you're starting a project, what kind of information do you typically get from your clients about what they know the starting point of patients is? Or is that something that you really have to dig in for yourself and figure out and draw on all these different resources that you've been talking about and tap into your own knowledge of being in the patient space? Mm-hmm. Really, it depends on the individual project. I do ask, and my favorite clients will ask, you know, what's the purpose of this? I will ask who sometimes who is the patient. And I do a little bit of patient work where I'll, you know, gather testimonials and write stories from the patient point of view. So if I do work on, say, bariatric surgery, weight loss surgery, it is invaluable to find out a little bit about the patient, either from the client, you know, who is coming to you? What is their expectation? What is their hope? Where do most of these folks end up in terms of outcomes? So I would say definitely talk to your client. What is happening with this particular group of constituents? And then you can address their hopes, dreams, and fears. When we write about, you know, what is a research study? Should I join one? We talk about what I call the Henrietta Lacks problem. The problem that something will be done to me without my knowledge, so I won't have a chance to consent, and I will be your guinea pig. And I ain't doing that. And here again, Henrietta Lacks is a great example for our times and for all times, because we come into the questions of equity. Who is older and doesn't, you know, read health information that well because they don't see well? Who is from a very different culture from the healthcare culture? Who comes from outside who's going to get used? And why don't those people join research studies? 
So a little bit of a digression, but again, we get into issues of ethics and equity there. And that is the cornerstone for me of why patient education is so important. And for me, that should be the biggest driver of providers to do it and to want it is the playing field and equity and bringing everyone into science. The more people we can bring into science, perhaps the less antagonism and fear we may feel against things that come from science. I know that's asking everybody to bite off a big chunk of uh, work there. But I love that image of bringing people into science and that marriage or that union of personal experience and how important that can be in both the patient and the provider side Mm -hmm. and how that is filtered through science and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Anything that we haven't really touched on that you think is especially important for anybody who's thinking about creating patient education. And I'm thinking, I'm asking this question as I'm realizing that, of course, patient reported outcomes is a growing area in any of the written work that we produce in healthcare education. Mm -hmm. I would say spinning off the mention of patient reported outcomes, I would talk a little bit about something we don't use enough in patient education, usability testing, user testing. We use it all the time in technology. Yes. And the wonderful thing I learned from a seminar by uh, Ginny Reddish, and web usability folks will know who that is, um, but she's a very august usability expert, is you really need only about five people from your intended audience. And I think we try in health education, and we often will gather you know, really expert patients, people who are advocates for the fight against the disease or we'll only have a couple of patients and then a doctor, a social worker, and a chaplain. So we do user testing or we say we do, but we're not using enough real, genuine, absolutely new to the topic patients. And you really only need about five people and you need to sit with them and watch their face and reactions and understand that they will try to pretend they understand if you're their doctor and say, Mrs. Smith, do you understand? Oh, yes, doctor. You can go on YouTube and find videos where patients will admit to lying to their doctors about understanding because they don't want to be thought stupid. Right. Doctors are respected figures. So I would say user testing and doing it in a very by the side way rather than an overweening way or just an overexcited and overly zestful way. Just kind of come alongside people and watch them read and read with them and kind of see what happens. And is that happening in the patient education world? Not enough. Not a lot. I'm guessing there are resource implications there and also getting the kind of expertise to have that usability, you know, user experience. To me, I, I think I do not know. I, you know, I don't want your audience to come forth and send you letters and say, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. There are millions of us doing it. She doesn't know anything about it. So I'm not going to say. I would love to see it. I encourage my clients to try it. I think the objections that I see are, it will cost us money. We don't have the time. We don't have anybody who knows how to sit with the patient or caregiver in a room and watch them read our handout and take notes on 
how they react. We would have to pay them. Where would we find those people? Well, we already have these people. You know, well, we have some patients. They're professional patient advocates, but they're patients. They have the disease. So I think I just listed off about eight, you know, reasonable sounding objections to really doing it. Yeah, no, 100%. I can hear those objections being void. Yeah. You know, as you as you list them off. And I think that, you know, that people do end up using their expert faculty precisely mm-hmm. for that purpose. But in order to do that as expert faculty, you need to have what... Um, Marxist scholars would say bifurcated consciousness. You need to have Mm -hmm. one foot in both camps. You need to be able to put away your advocacy hat and keep Mm -hmm. only your patient hat and then put that to one side and do that kind of translation, which I suspect is what most people are doing because it's, it's a bit more efficient and economical. Right. Genevieve. We've gone way over time. It's been such a pleasure. I could spend way more time talking to you. Thank you. How can listeners connect with you? Well, they can find me at my website, uh, www.genevivelong.com. And that's G-E-N-E-V-I-E-V-E-L-O-N-G. And uh, gosh, they can always, they should contact you and have you sent, (laughs) have you reach out. Are you on social? I am on social. I'm on Twitter as Dr. Jen Long. Great. And we'll make sure that we have all that information in the show notes, as well as the many, many resources that you flagged up in our conversation. Great. And all that remains for me to do is to thank you for your time. And we'll speak again soon. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for the opportunity to speak about this. I really appreciate it. And I know that patients and providers will too. If you are a writer of patient education materials, whose voice is guiding the content you create? What tools are you using to address readability, literacy, and cognitive demand when you're writing materials to support patient learning? One of the key takeaways for me from this conversation with Genevieve is her insistence on inhabiting the same plane as patient readers. Her insistence on practicing empathy as she writes materials for patient learners. And I loved how Genevieve laid out principles of adult learning in such a digestible way. Engagement, interactivity, segmented content, and unpacked what empowerment means to patients. I'm your host, Alex Housen. Thank you for listening to Write Medicine.